If you have your Bibles, we'll get right into it. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at the first 17 verses of that chapter. As we were dropping here in the middle of the book, I thought I'd give you a bit of, you know, a little background and overview of where we are in Colossians chapter 3 here. So this letter was written to the Colossians by Paul, as many of you probably know. And this was one of his, I think, four prison epistles, which means that Paul wrote this letter while incarcerated. The church at Colossae was not established by Paul, though. It was likely established by a man named Epaphras, who likely traveled a short distance over to Ephesus, where Paul was, heard the gospel from Paul, and then went back to his people and shared the gospel with them there, and the first church was started. But the occasion here in Colossians and Paul's reasons for writing is that Epaphras likely went back to Rome and saw Paul in Rome and told him that false teachings were creeping into the church back home at Colossae. So Paul wrote to respond to this false teaching, but also to encourage the church in their following of Christ. The book begins in the first two chapters and right here at the beginning in chapter one with Paul's customary greeting, thanksgiving, and prayer for the church. And then toward the end of chapter one, I believe verse 15, we see a high and lofty description of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of how the Lord has saved us from our debt of sin in chapter two. And he, of course, addresses the false teachings that we just talked about. Paul speaks of his labor for the gospel. And then he concludes this deep, doctrinal section of teaching in the first two chapters. And at this point, until the conclusion of the letter, from the end of chapter 2 until the end, Paul moves to more of a teaching on Christian living, sort of applying the deep truths of the first two chapters. But sandwiched in the middle of the deep doctrine of chapters 1 and 2 and the practical Christian living of chapters 3 and 4 are 17 amazing verses pointing the believer in Colossae, as well as us here tonight, on where we must direct the focus of our lives as God's holy people. And those 17 verses are right here in chapter 3, if you will follow with me. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. 
And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So to summarize this in one sentence, we see that in order to put sin to death, and live as God's holy people, we must continually set our hearts and mind on what is above. Or truly, we should set our hearts and our minds on who is above. We should set our whole hearts and minds on Jesus. Look at how this begins in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. Pastor Wade spoke on this topic of resurrection in great depth Sunday night. And it was very encouraging and edifying for myself. But here Paul sort of transitions, as I said, from the doctrinal teaching of the book. And he moves to say, if you believe these things, if you have been raised with Christ, if you are a believer with Jesus, here is what your life must look like. He says, firstly, you must seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. And not only does Paul say to seek the things that are above, but also in verse 2, he says that we must set our minds on what is above. To seek what is above and to set our minds on what is above in these first few verses, they look like or sound like synonymous statements, like Paul is sort of repeating himself, but really they are not. In verse 1, when Paul says to seek what is above, he likely refers to our hearts. And what he means is that we must set the desires and affections of our hearts on Jesus, whose character and ways are far beyond the ways of this earth. We must love Jesus with all of our hearts, set our hearts on Him. Likewise, Paul continues and says, we must set our minds on Christ. So we must set our hearts on Him and love Him, but also we must pursue in our minds, a deeper knowledge of Jesus, of the Lord, in His Word. And as we know Him more, the cool thing about this is as we seek Him with all of our hearts and love Him and then seek Him with our minds in His Word, so will our hearts' affections grow to delight in Him and love Him all the more. Bringing these two lines of thought together, we see that we must set our hearts and minds wholly on Jesus. A better reading of verse 1 would be not merely to seek the things that are above, but to keep on seeking the things that are above. This is a never-ending process of fighting to keep ourselves set on Christ rather than, as it says, the things of the world. When we wake in the morning, we should set our minds on Christ in prayer, in the Word, going about our daily lives, whatever we may be doing, our minds and our hearts should be set own Christ. And all the more, when problems arise, no matter how big or small they are, our minds should be set on Christ at all times, in all places. And this probably brings to mind for you all Matthew 6.33, 
which exhorts us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. One skeptical of the Christian faith or hesitant to maybe give up his or her ways for the Lord may ask at this point, you know, why would I do this? Or is it really worth it to give my life wholly to the Lord, even think about him constantly? And Paul answers well to this in verse 3, saying, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Just a page back in Colossians 2, verse 13, we see that we were dead in sin. We had no hope of being saved, but God made us alive by canceling the record of debt or the record of sin that stood against each one of us. So if you have believed in the gospel of Jesus and turned from sin, repented, turned to Jesus, here at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul moves to say, You have died to your past sinful way of living and your earthly way of thinking. Your life is no longer your own, but is now hidden with Christ in God. And not only that, but if you are a man or woman marked by faith in Jesus, you will appear with him in glory. So the answer to that skeptic question would be, yes, it is worth it to give all that I have away to the Lord, and to His will. And with all of that said, we must at all times and in all places set our whole hearts and minds on Christ. We cannot neglect or forget Him because this is our only hope of living a life which reflects His holiness. This makes me, and I'm sure you've had the same experience or had the same experience, but it makes me think back to four or five years ago when I was in high school, traveling with sports teams or as a student on field trips, you remember what the teacher or coach would say as you get off the bus. They would always say something like, remember who you are and remember who you represent. Whatever you do and whatever you say, when you go inside this place, where whatever we're doing, that is what, and they would say, this is what people would think of East Webster High School. And I remember that plainly. But Christian In many of the same ways, but incomparably all the more, remember who you are and remember who you belong to. Set your minds on the Lord that you may be holy as he is holy and represent him well as men and women made in his image. Paul builds on this thought of setting our minds on Christ to say that not only must we do that, But he continues to say, if we have been raised with Christ, we must put to death the sins of our past. Look at verses 5 through 7. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. This list of sins are sins of the Colossians' past. Sins many of the people in this very church likely indulged in before coming to Jesus. You'll notice that most of these refer to sexual sin, which was a prominent problem in Colossae. But don't miss the point here. Don't miss the language Paul uses in pointing us to the importance of putting past sin away. 
He does not say halfway deal with this sin that you once walked in, and if some of it is still there, you'll be fine. No, he says, put to death, put to death what is earthly in you. Put these sins to death. And in case we needed more motivation, he continues in verse 6 to say, the wrath of God is coming on account of these sins. The wrath of God comes on the disobedient. We must not only put the sins of our past to death, as we have just seen, but also we must continue in putting even present sin to death. Verse 8, but now, he says, now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We noted that we must not return to past sin, but put them to death. Well, the fight does not end at this, at this point. The Christian life is one of a constant struggle to put away even present sin and new sin, future sin that is going to come up. Hidden inward sins of our past, such as evil desire and wrath, malice left unconfessed, not repented of, not properly dealt with, will eventually come to the light and become present sin, now sin that we're all of a sudden dealing with now. Whether that coming to light be a public matter or dealt with at God's judgment, it will be revealed. Sin will be revealed. So yes, it is important to put past sin to death, lest they creep up and take over our lives. But we also have to search ourselves daily and repent of and kill present sin, which as sinful people I know as good as anyone here, often and all too often spring up in our lives. One man put it best when speaking of killing sin in our lives. He said it very shortly and nicely. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It is a never-ending battle, the fight against sin, but it is a battle that we must fight as believers in the Lord who have been raised from death to life in Christ. Taking a deeper look at these sins of anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language, lying, they seem to be primarily sins of the mouth, things we say, and we won't get into the weeds of curse words and cursing, but it seems here, and we should take note, that it is possible a person could speak in a way which is unfitting for the Christian life. This ends sort of the section of sins to avoid in this passage. But a good reminder at this point is that, of course, we are unable to rid our lives of all sin, much less any sin, apart from the grace and power of God. This is not a list of things to avoid in order that we may be good enough to avoid God's judgment or escape His wrath. We know that we could never be good enough in and of ourselves to escape God's judgment. This is perhaps why the chapter began not with the list of sins. Paul said, all these terrible things, put them away and you're good. But Paul began by saying, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. We do not keep from sin in order that we may be good enough to be saved by God, but we have been raised with Christ. God loves us. 
He has raised us from death to life, promises resurrection as we learned Sunday evening, and He has saved us and chosen us. This is why we desire to avoid sin, and this is the only reason we're even capable to avoid sin at all, because of God's transforming work in our hearts. Speaking of God's transforming effect on our hearts and lives, we see a couple results of this work of the Lord in the second half of this passage. And the first of those we see are that we must be one in Christ. Verse 11, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So whether there is a difference in ethnicity, we see that here with the Greek and Jew, or a difference in religious traditions with circumcision, uncircumcision, or maybe it's a simple difference in culture, and that's what barbarian, Scythian points to here. And then you see slave or free, that means you know there may be a difference in social class or economic standing. No matter all these differences within the church at Colossae, as well as here at Longview Point, Christ is all and in all. We are one in Christ. An implication to draw from this truth in continuing the thought of sins to avoid is that as believers, we can make no exceptions for culturally acceptable sin. We are one in Christ. You may find yourself here in the United States where we live in a culture where money and possessions seem to be life. Well, we must not give in to the greed or the sin of greed, but honor Jesus and remain faithful to Him as more valuable than any amount of money or financial security this world could afford. More commonly, we may find ourselves in a place where it seems appropriate to use filthy language, but we must honor Christ, seek what is above, and be faithfully obedient to His Word. We don't make exceptions for culturally acceptable sin. We are one in Christ. We'll speak more to this being one in Christ toward the end of this passage, but in the last verses here, we we see that we must live holy lives as God's chosen people. We must live holy lives as God's chosen people. And a lot of people get this word holy confused. I know I often have, but to be holy means to be set apart. And God, the God we serve is holy. Not only is he holy, but we see in Isaiah 6 to emphasize his holiness that he is holy, 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 three times holy. There is no sin in him. There is not a speck of darkness in our God. But this word holy means much more than just cleanliness or separateness from sin. But God is completely set apart and a cut above anything we as humans have ever known or experienced or could imagine. Think of him as transcendent, set apart, beyond the range of our normal human experience, not subject to the limitations of the earth, material universe as we live in it and as we know it. So God is holy, set apart, and we as God's people, stamped with his image, must to the best of our abilities and by the grace of God, be separate from sin 
and holy as he is holy, set apart from the ways of this world. We saw Paul use the language of putting off sin or putting it to death. He now says to put on these things in the last half of the passage, put on these holy and righteous ways of living. Clothe yourselves with these good things, he says. Verse 12 and 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has also forgiven you, so you must also forgive. The gist of these two verses seem to be that we are to live among one another within the church in an understanding way. This is sort of a continuation on the thought above of us all being one in Christ. This living in an understanding way and applying these truths to our lives is essential, essential if we are to have unity within the church. And it's essential because the church is only filled with far from perfect, sinful people like myself and like you. And the fact of the matter is, is that disagreements will come. People will fail you. Therefore, in order to keep our minds set on what is above, we must live among one another, as this word says, with compassionate hearts, kindness, meekness, and of course, patience. And above all, Paul says to put on love, for this binds all things together and binds us all together in perfect harmony. Next, Paul only rightly directs the focus of this passage as it began back to Jesus. And he says in verse 15, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. When our eyes are set on what is above, when our minds and hearts are set on Christ, who is above, the menial little fleeting earthly problems will not as much phase us, but with eternity and resurrection, as Pastor Wade pointed out in mind, we will remember that this is not our home, but our home is with Jesus, where he is, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And in this, we find the peace of Christ. And further, Paul isn't speaking to you as an individual here. This is something that we miss a lot. We read the Bible and think it's all about me, like, yes, me, this is what I'm supposed to do. But he isn't speaking. He is speaking to you, but not just to you alone. He speaks to us all together as the church. Look at what he continues to say. To which indeed you were called in one body. And he continues this emphasis toward corporate fellowship and worship by saying in verse 16 that we not only let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, but let the word of Christ dwell in us all richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. If we truly want to set our hearts and minds on what is above, on Jesus, we have to be filled with God's word. We must know him, and we must know him well. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it dwell in you lavishly, so much that you are overflowing with it. 
and in love with Jesus to the point that not only is the news about him anchored well in your mind and your heart and your soul, but it is also on your lips. You speak to others about the gospel. You speak to others about Jesus inside the church and out. Lindsay Lance was here last week and gave myself and I'm sure the whole staff a good reminder that we not forget the Lord is real. He is present everywhere, always, and he is also working. While we share the gospel or have spiritual conversations with others and pray for them, in the moment it may seem awkward or mundane, like nothing good is happening or nothing big, but God is at work. And he is using those very means of the spreading of his word, the sharing of his word to bring people to himself. And we can praise the Lord for that and not forget the goodness of that truth. And even praise the Lord, we even have just sent out a few men and women doing that now. So I would encourage you with that in mind to so fill yourselves with the word of Christ in your mind and in your heart, but also speak of it to others here in the church and out. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And we do all that, that God may grow his church here together in one body, but also bring lost souls to himself. So we must continually seek what is above and not fall asleep or let our hearts become numb to the gospel of Jesus Christ as well, in the work that he's put before us. He has saved us through the hearing of this good news, and now we have the great privilege and responsibility to to speak of and share this same gospel with other people, that they may come to know him as well. So in these last couple verses, what we've just seen is in 15 and 16 is the importance of corporate fellowship, being at church and intentional within your church body, within the life of your church, and also to be so indwelt with the Word of Christ, to teach one another and be taught and worship the Lord together through song. Looking at this last verse, 17, the passage began, as you know now, with the command to set our minds on Christ, to seek what is above, and Paul ends it well here with verse 17 by sort of connecting the end back with the beginning and bringing it all together. Verse 17, he says that whatever you do in word or deed, do everything by the Father through him. So in closing here, I have a brother who is four years younger than me and then a sister who's four years younger than him. And When the Christmas season gets close every year, I think this is normal, um, but my mother will go around and start asking us, you know, name two or three things you may want or need for Christmas. And I don't know if this is right, but I think maybe around 10 years ago, I can barely remember this, but I was probably 13. My brother was around nine years old. And I don't remember what I asked for that year, but my brother wanted a new pair of running shoes. So he didn't want a new pair of shoes. He wanted a pair of running shoes. And I'd guess that my parents didn't think much about that at the time. Neither did I. But anyways, Christmas morning finally came around, and it was a nice morning, as always, of sitting around the house with family, opening gifts, and reflecting on the Christmas season, on Jesus. And Brooks began to open one of his gifts. Brooks, my brother's name is Brooks. I don't know if I said that at this point yet or not. But he opened his gift and 
Guess what it was? A new pair of shoes. So he was all excited, and he thanked mom and dad for his new running shoes. But after a while, he was nowhere to be found, my brother. So we, we don't really know where he is. But anyways, we have this big um, glass door on our patio on the backyard. It kind of looked over, overlooked the backyard. And before my parents had a chance to be concerned or look for him or worry about where he is, we saw him, my brother, nine years old, through this glass door in the backyard. He's got his brand new running shoes on, strapped up. He's looking good, and he's running as fast as he can across the backyard. And he's going back and forth over and over again. And this was really funny to us as we realized that Brooks wanted running shoes. He specifically wanted running shoes. He got them, and he put them on, and he went running. And I think back, I don't know what made me think of this story, but I imagine, thinking back into Brooks's nine-year-old mind, he got those shoes, and he must have thought something like, this is it. I've got my shoes. I'm going to tell all my friends about it, and I have made it in life. I have everything I need, because that's how we sort of think as um, young boys. But immediately, without giving it another thought, he put them on and he went running. And this may not be the best comparison, but you see, similarly, Christianity is our life. As my brother probably thought he had the best thing ever in just a pair of shoes, we have Jesus Christ. And our Christianity is not a mere top priority in life. It's not something we do just because it's right. Just come to church and check that off the list. But Jesus is our life. He is our reason for living. He is the only reason that all of us in this room have oxygen in our lungs to live right now. He's uh, In Colossians chapter 1, it says that he holds all things together. Jesus is the only reason we don't completely fall apart off the face of the earth right now. He is our reason for living. He is everything. For me to live is Christ and die is gain, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. And with that in mind, we must set our minds and hearts totally on him. And as Brooks got his new running shoes and he did not consider doing anything apart from putting them on and going running, we have been raised with Christ. Now we should want and do nothing more, nothing less than making Jesus our life, our reason for living as well. Live to know him and put sin to death. Be holy as he is holy and make him known. And we see all of that in this passage here. And that should be the focal point of our lives and our reason for living, our reason for existing, because he is the only reason that any of us are here and the only reason that any of us have the hope of heaven and resurrection. And as said in this passage, just to sum it up for you one more time, in order to put sin to death and live as God's holy people, we must continually, without ceasing at all times, set our hearts and minds wholly on Jesus and set them on Him alone. Let us pray. God, I thank you for this evening, and I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for Colossians chapter 3, which exhorts us to set our minds on you. 
Lord, I pray that you would help us to do that this week. God, we have been raised with Christ. Now help us to seek the things that are above and to set our minds wholly on you. And and I pray that that would give us the desires to put off sin, put off past sin in our lives that may creep back up, Lord, and to fight continually to put off sin, present sin, sin that may come in the future, sin that we don't even know about. Lord, help us to rid ourselves of it as we set our minds on you and then to live holy as you are holy. God, to be forgiving with one another, to live as a humble and kind, compassionate and patient people. God, so that we may do well in your church to build one another up, but also to reach those who have not yet had the the great opportunity of coming to know you by grace through faith. And I pray that we just as well would, would leave with the gospel on our lips. If you are on our minds at all times and all places, then surely you would come out of our mouths. We would speak of you. And I pray that you would help me to do that, help us all to do that and, and live in a way which glorifies you. Lord, help us in whatever we do, in word or deed, to do everything in your name and give thanks to you for all things. In Christ's name I pray, amen.